0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, a new group of Tory MPs dedicated to attacking the government's net zero plans is growing in influence, but who are they?
0: I believe that we have a moral duty to leave this world in a better condition than uh, what we inherited.
1: And that's why today we're announcing that we will be ending our contribution to climate change
0: by 2050 and legislating for a net zero emissions target.
1: In June 2019, the then Prime Minister Theresa May committed the UK to reaching net zero emissions by 2050, the first major economy to make the pledge. The move was welcomed by climate campaigners as a positive first step in decarbonising the country, with the hope that more ambitious, urgent measures would eventually follow. May rushed through the legislation as one of her final acts in office, with no significant pushback at the time from fellow Conservative MPs. But in recent months, there's been a shift occurring in a small wing of the party. Some Tory MPs have started complaining about the financial cost of net-zero measures. And a group of MPs known as the Net Zero Scrutiny Group have put together an organised campaign against the policy.
0: The most dramatic and scary IPC scenarios, the extreme ones that lead to disaster and doom, aren't going to happen. They are implausible.
1: Throwing out misleading claims and blaming it for the worsening cost of living
0: crisis. I want us to be prosperous and warm, not poor and cold. And if we want to be prosperous and warm, we have to be really careful about how we get to net zero. And that might mean going a little slower.
1: Now, there are growing fears that the attempt to link the two issues risks pushing the climate crisis into a new culture war. From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Nikbal. Today in Focus... The MPs trying to roll back the UK's net zero commitment. (music) Helena Horton, you're an environment reporter at The Guardian. When did you first come across the net zero scrutiny group?
2: Well, I first came across them when they were set up in the middle of last year. It seemed like quite a small group, so I thought, worth keeping an eye on. But then, I guess around COP, they started getting a bit more coverage and they were on BBC kind of saying incorrect things. And then it kind of came to a head the beginning of this year when they kind of harnessed the cost of living crisis and the energy crisis to spread their message. They reared their head in the end of January in an article in the Sunday Telegraph, called for the government to look again at their net zero policy, claiming that it's adding um, to their constituents' bills. And they started getting a lot of media coverage and a lot of kind of unparliamentary attention. And then I thought it's important to look into them and see why they're saying what they're saying.
1: And who started this group?
2: So, officially they say they all came together because they're concerned about the cost of living crisis and it kind of happened organically. But from what MPs have told me behind the scenes is that they were canvassed by Lord Lilly, who's a long-term climate sceptic.
0: The costs will exceed the benefits for the first century. So we're talking of doing something where any returns are going to accrue to people more than a century hence.
2: The MP for Hitchin and and Harpenden is now in the House of Lords.
0: We were passing a measure in the belief that the world was getting warmer when it was snowing in London in October for the first time in 74 years.
2: And Steve Baker...
0: Sometimes the wind doesn't blow, sometimes the sun doesn't shine.
2: Anyone who's been following the Brexit story will know who he is.
0: So if we want to be prosperous and warm, then we need to go for gas and go for gas right now.
2: He's the chairman of the European Research Group, the ERG, and he's the man who was pushing with a bunch of MPs for hard Brexit.
0: I mean I'm very concerned about the the negativity, the doom mongering, you know, the, the, the minute to midnight and all of this stuff.
2: And Craig McKinley, who is the front man of this group, used to be in UKIP and is now a Tory MP.
0: This has to be paid for in tax. Let's come back to and, that. And point. I didn't I didn't become a Conservative to make my constituents colder and poorer.
1: So those are the three key players. How many other MPs have they persuaded to join this group?
2: Well, I was talking to Lord Lilly and I said to him, OK, there are only around 19 of you aren't there, so how influential really are you? And he responded and said, oh, those are the only ones that will put their name to it. There are around 40 or 50 of us. I don't know if that's true because they're very opaque and they've not released a list of members. All we can see is who's spoken out in the media. But... If that's the case, it does go to show that some of them are perhaps worried for their parliamentary career if they speak out. Whether that will change, I don't know, because similar happened with hard Brexit. It started out as a very fringe small group with a few outriders and turned into something that took over the majority of the Tory party.
1: Can you give me um, uh, some of the names? Like who, who, who are these MPs and ministers? Anyone that we might be
2: familiar with? Esther McVeigh, a former minister from a DWP minister. She used to be a TV presenter. What I would never want to do is bankrupt the country. We don't go green and go red as a country at the same time. There's a Robert Halfin, who is kind of a more moderate voice in the group, I think. He's someone who actually does have quite a lot of mainstream support. There's Scott Benton and Mark Jenkinson, who are two
0: Red Wall MPs. The title of this debate is Future of the Call in the UK. But perhaps we should discuss the future of the UK without coal, because frankly, Madam Deputy Speaker, it would look quite different, not just the world we live in now, but the world we need it to be.
2: There's Anne-Marie Morris. She is um, the MP who lost the whip after voting with Labour to cut um, costs on energy bills. So it really is a kind of a cross-section, which makes them seem like they are more credible than I believe they actually are. Helena, this whole group is set up in
1: opposition to net zero. Do you want to just explain, first of all, exactly what the concept of net zero is?
2: Yes. So net zero is a policy that many countries across the world have taken, most of them. Basically, it's about having an equilibrium where you're not emitting more greenhouse gases than you are absorbing back into you know, the ocean or the, the land.
1: And what does the government's current net zero strategy look like? What are the flagship policies?
2: So basically, they're saying they want to reach net zero by 2050. This includes decarbonising the economy, investing more in renewable energy, and it includes insulating homes more and trying to get people to get heat pumps, which are a more energy efficient way of heating your home, and also rolling out electric cars and banning diesel cars by 2030.
1: So anyone who's been following the news or just looks out the window could see that these are probably like no-brainer arguments or policies to have.
2: So what exactly does a net zero scrutiny group have to say about it? They claim that um, green levies are put on our energy bills, which fund renewable energy. And at the moment, that's unaffordable because energy has gone up so much. They also claim that electric cars are something that only um, the elite can afford and that any of the elite will be able to afford. They claim that we should be investing in our own oil and gas and also even fracking so that we are not reliant on imports from other countries and therefore we are more kind of politically stable. So those are the three main things they've been saying recently, but their particular focus is on energy bills. And they say we should basically supercharge our own production of oil and gas and even um, coal and re- reduce prices that way.
1: This motley crew of MPs seem to be hitching their agenda, as you say, to the cost of living crisis, to say that climate policies will worsen it. What actually has caused that crisis?
2: Um, I've spoken to quite a few climate scientists on this and they've pointed towards our reliance on gas um, as one of the main reasons for it because the gas price is going up worldwide. It's a worldwide issue. And if we had our own renewable energy now powering more of our grid, we would not be beholden to those prices. inflation's also gone up across the board while well, wages have stagnated, as I'm sure many of our listeners have experienced themselves. And also there's been supply chain issues both due to COVID and due to Brexit, which ironically is something that many of the people in this group campaigned for, particularly a hard Brexit.
1: So on the face of it, the group is arguing that their primary concern is that these policies will make people poorer. Have the individual's in this group, being particularly vocal on the cost of living and energy bills before now?
2: Well, to be fair to Steve Baker, he did call for the universal credit uplift um, to be kept, but actually then, in September, he was not one of the four Tory MPs to rebel against it. In fact, none of the people in the group were. No, their voting records suggest that they have not voted to reduce poverty in most cases, and they have not really spoken up on energy prices.
1: There are so many ways that you could help people through this cost of living crisis but this group has chosen to focus in on net zero. Do we know where they're getting their ideas on the climate from?
2: So, Um, Their ideas, I believe, are influenced partly by the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which was set up in 2009 to directly challenge the Climate Change Act in 2008. It's a think tank critics have called the biggest source of climate scepticism in the UK. Some of its founding members included Lord Lawson, who has denied climate change exists. And if it does exist, he said that it's not a bad thing. And um, they have very strong links to this group. So Craig McKinley works very closely with the GWPF. He's always on their press releases. He's always speaking out on their behalf. And Peter Lilly, Lord Lilly, was a trustee of this group, as was Steve Baker. This group um, is always putting out policy documents and has since its inception calling for a watering down or halting of any measure to tackle the climate crisis. And this group is very opaque in how it's funded. So it's
1: not just the fact that this net zero scrutiny group is being influenced by a climate sceptic think tank. It actually involves some of the same people. If we look at their overall argument that net
2: zero will be a drain on the economy, how are they attempting to prove this? So writing for the Conservative Home website in July, Mr McKinley said that the estimate for the cost of net zero would be 1.4 trillion of capital spending. He said it's over half of UK annual GDP or 35 times the annual defence budget but the grantham institute which is at the london school of economics and makes up some of britain's most eminent climate scientists said it was extremely misleading and that basically it would be spread over 30 years between 2020 and 2050 at the end of the day it's going to only amount to one percent of gdp by 2050 and these investments would be offset by significant and growing savings okay so how will these savings be made Pretty much all climate science says that the costs of not acting are catastrophic compared to the costs of acting. So it costs money to begin with, to build you know, green power plants, to um, decarbonise industry, to build new industries. But the whole global economy is moving towards green industry. So if we don't do it, even from a purely business perspective, not a climate perspective, it'll end up costing money. If we, could, we have a choice, we can either be at the forefront of green industry... And build things here and build jobs, or we can be behind and we can drive polluting vehicles, we can have jobs that are kind of becoming increasingly redundant in the world economy and have to play catch up when other countries go first.
1: Are there Conservative MPs pushing back at the net zero scrutiny group?
2: So there is a rival group set up by Chris Skidmore, MP, a former minister. He set up this group called the Net Zero Support Group. And yeah, it's in its infancy stages. I mean, they haven't released a list of members yet. He's still trying to canvass MPs to sign up. And he's also a member of the Conservative Environment Network. They are trying to show support, but instead of kind of debunking these claims or outright kind of criticising their colleagues, they're just kind of reaffirming their support for net zero, which isn't on the surface as interesting a statement as the provocative things that the net zero scrutiny group are saying. So beyond that attempt,
1: are there other Conservatives speaking out?
2: Yes, Lord Goldsmith in particular, Zach Goldsmith, he is an environment minister and a foreign minister whose brief has been to get countries around the world to sign up to protecting forests and oceans in order to reach net zero. He had previously been frustrated by this group, but not wanted to give their views credence and thought if he kind of um, ignored them, they might go away and they're only a very small group. But last weekend, when they reared their heads to campaign for fracking, um, which is a very unpopular measure, no matter what party you vote for due to the pollution, disturbance and other issues it causes. He spoke up. He thought he had to speak up. He decided that the group was receiving too much media attention and they weren't being challenged by government. He actually tweeted a thread debunking all of their claims and saying, Look, firstly, it's a hugely unpopular policy. People do not want fracking in their backyards, driving their house prices down, polluting the local waterways, and causing a huge amount of noise and disruption. And secondly, it would not solve the crisis because, as I said earlier, the gas would not be outweigh the amounts that that goes into our energy bills and it doesn't doesn't go to British consumers it goes to the highest bidder.
1: There does seem to be a fixed playbook at work here that individuals in the group have very successfully used before when they've campaigned for Brexit or to lobby against lockdown restrictions.
2: Are similar tactics being deployed here? Yes totally so they pick kind of pressure issues that the media is really interested in campaigning on so they become the go-to persons so for example the cost of living crisis they've made themselves very available to the right wing press and said look here are our ways to solve it and it gives a new news line to the right wing press saying here's the way to solve the energy crisis they did that with Brexit too and they're talking about those um, wealthy people who own electric vehicles and how the average Joe can't afford to get one and yeah perhaps it is a, that's an argument but it's another example of how they are p- positioning people against each other and it, People who followed the Brexit campaign closely will know that is exactly what they did. And again, the people who are making these comments, it's quite laughable that they're talking about wealthy people versus the less well off, because a lot of the people making these arguments are very privileged and wealthy people themselves.
1: And sticking with the Brexit theme, perhaps its biggest ambassador is Nigel Farage. Now, Obviously, he isn't an MP, but he does know a thing or two about making populist arguments. And he's pushing against net zero now, isn't he?
2: Yes. I mean, he was weirdly part of that group campaign, I think, last year about planting trees. But yes, largely against net zero.
0: I think the UK government are in for a hell of a shock. Uh, Whilst there are uh, people who have very principled objections to fracking and they're worried about the environment.
2: He um, actually has been pressuring MPs to support fracking recently.
0: That the UK should be energy self-sufficient and that we cannot drive millions of families into complete poverty.
2: And yeah, um, he is close to the ERG. He's close to a lot of the MPs who were involved in that, who were also involved in the net zero scrutiny group. And he's also close to quite a lot of the people who are in the Global Warming Policy Foundation. So yes, he is behind the scenes. I'm not sure if he is as big a figure in this as he was in Brexit, but he might see an opportunity to come back onto the political stage again if this gains some ground.
0: And we are, it's rumoured on the verge of launching a national campaign to have a referendum whether we should go for net zero. Why do I say a referendum then? I'll tell you why. Just like the European question, just like the open door immigration question, just like so many things, these are imposed upon the British people.
1: With Nigel Farage on board, are we
2: potentially looking
1: at a referendum on green policies down the line?
2: Well, I really, truly hope not because I don't think the country, firstly, has got the emotional energy for another referendum. I certainly don't have the emotional energy for another referendum. But it is something that has been floated. So the Telegraph newspaper has been had its columnists campaigning for a referendum on net zero and they're one of the, the newspapers that pushed for a referendum on brexit a lot of the mps have said it's something that could be in the future that they're kind of pushing for they're saying it's something that's been put in place without consensus of the people hopefully it'll be flash in the pan or kind of a just a thorn in, in the side of um climate activists but i don't think it's out of the question it's something they're actually actively asking for and steve baker the guy who's behind a lot of it has said he's hoping to do for net zero what he did for Brexit and he was very successful with hard Brexit wasn't he?
1: God that's terrifying. How concerned should Boris Johnson be about the influence of the net zero scrutiny group?
2: Well I'm sure he's got many things to be concerned about at the moment this is just one thing on the list. I'm more worried that he will end up thinking a way to save his own skin is to throw red meat to the the right of the Tory party. Some of these people have been very critical of him for a long time, not just on net zero, but a lot of the red wallers who haven't really got to know him properly because of COVID and they were only elected in 2019, who were in this group. Steve Baker has been very critical of him on his COVID measures. So he may think a way to appease this wing of the party is to roll back some of his measures.
1: Coming up. What's at stake if net zero becomes another culture war issue? do you think it's possible that this net zero scrutiny group will successfully turn the issue of the climate crisis into another culture war?
2: Gosh, I really, really hope they don't. That's why we, me and Matt wrote this piece, Matt Taylor at The Guardian. It's very similar to other campaigns they've done, including the Brexit campaign. It's just trying to make it into an us and them thing. They're trying to frame net zero as something that only lefties care about, something that only the metropolitan elite living in urban areas care about and the average man on the street doesn't care about climate change. And that to me is very upsetting because if it becomes an issue of the left or an issue of woke or an issue of urban metropolitan elite, that's cutting out half the country. And this is such a big issue that actually every single political party should be working together on tackling it, it doesn't matter what your political view is and if it be- becomes associated with just the left wing that takes a lot of power out of it at the moment actually it's been quite amazing that the consensus has been that we should meet net zero we're not going far enough obviously according to a lot of climate scientists but at least we are trying to meet it and If their tactics mean that we start shouting at each other and becoming divided again, much like we did over Brexit, I'm concerned that we'll spend all of our time arguing about minutiae and, you know, throwing insults at each other. And then every day that goes by, we lose a day of fighting climate change. And how dangerous would that be? Well, it's dangerous for the future of the planet. It's not just dangerous for our own net zero policy. Plenty of countries look to us. Uh, because we are we are world-leading in quite a lot of it. I mean, I know we've signed up to very similar policies to European countries, to America, but in terms of our renewable energy, we've done very, very well, and in terms of other things, in, um, in terms of science and technology, and in terms of um, biodiversity proposals and stuff. So other countries look to us. If we row back, why should any country, especially ones that are less well-off than us, agree to cut their carbon agree to go to net zero themselves if we of the richest countries in the world start sliding back and that's dangerous for the future of the planet i mean is there any kind of higher stakes thing
1: helena we know that climate scientists say that the government's net zero strategy is actually not ambitious enough to avert the uk's role in the climate crisis and yet bizarrely this group is twisting that narrative to say it goes too far how on earth do people who care about the environment, which includes some of their own Conservative colleagues, counter that?
2: It's so difficult because maybe perhaps even part of the strategy is to keep us in the long grass arguing about what we've already agreed. And even if they don't manage to get the government to roll back on its commitments, they might manage to you know, stop us from going any further. They might manage to kind of keep us arguing on these issues and these wedge issues and not let us move on to tackling the climate crisis you know more vigorously more widely it's very difficult because again the side of consensus doesn't normally have as provocative arguments as the side of the populist um, it happens with Brexit it's happened I think with a bit of Covid recovery as well but I think all we can do is shed light on these people say who they're influenced by say whether these are good actors or whether they are people who are being influenced by you know, long term climate sceptics, debunk their arguments. And also as listeners, I think they could write to their MP and say, look, uh, especially if they're in a constituency of one of these people, we've got a list of 19 of them, and say, actually, I agree with net zero, I agree with fighting climate change, tell their MPs, it isn't something that can be dismissed for political reasons. And that's actually something we should go further on.
1: Helena, thank you so much.
2: Thank you very much.
1: That was Helena Horton. You can read her and Matthew Taylor's reporting on the Net Zero Scrutiny Group at theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Cassin. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Maithli Rao. We'll be back on Monday.